The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning, Restoration Southside. Happy birthday to you. So exciting that we've been together for a year now worshiping. It is hard to imagine to describe to someone what all has transpired over this last year. It's been hard, but it's also been beautiful to see the Lord take care of us. And I'm glad that you're in this with me. We'll continue our study of Hebrews chapter 12, as has been read for us. And let's pray now and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would move powerfully through both, that you would comfort us and encourage us and also challenge us. We know that there are difficult things in this passage and beautiful things in this passage, and we ask that you would teach them to us both. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Many of you, especially with kiddos, have seen the Lego movie that came out in 2014. It's a wonderful story about a very ordinary guy who's called to be extraordinary. One point in the movie, he's, Emmett is supposed to be leading us into saving the world. But even as he's leading us into saving the world, he is aware of his own limitations. And he says this, yes, it's true, I may not be a master builder. I may not have a lot of experience in fighting or leading or coming up with plans or having ideas in general. In fact, I'm not all that smart, and I'm not what you'd call a creative type, plus generally unskilled, also scared and cowardly. I know what you're thinking. He's the least qualified person in the world to lead us, and you are right. And they say back to Emmett, this is supposed to make us feel better? The reason that I bring you that funny quote this morning is because as Christians, when called to live a life of holiness, a life of mission, in view of what Noah and Moses and Abraham and all of these heroes of the faith have done, in view of that, we sort of feel like Emmett, ill-qualified, not good enough, not strong enough. And yet just like Emmett in our lack of qualifications, we're still called to act, called to lead, called to step out and to fight. So this morning, as we look at the turning point of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, I encourage you to remember, just like Emmett, just because you don't feel qualified, just because you don't feel like you stand up to Abraham's testimony, it doesn't mean that God can't use you, you personally, in your story right now. He's saying in light of all of these heroes in faith, it's time for you to get up and run, even though you don't feel qualified. There's several things we'll look at this morning. The first one is, is that we can have hope because of faith in the past. We can have hope because of faith in the past. Look again with me in verse one, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see this great cloud of witnesses. The author is having us imagine this grand sort of coliseum, this athletic event, and there's these great cloud of witnesses, and this cloud of witnesses is incredible. He's just told us who they are. It's Abel, and it's Abraham, and it's Noah, and all of these heroes from the faith, and they're sort of sitting there waiting. Moses is there. Samuel, Gideon, Barak, they're there. They're all in this crowd of this Colosseum, and they're waiting on us. This great cloud of witnesses. That's what he's saying. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the point is, friends, the, we have this sense that our heroes of the faith are looking on to encourage us, to remind us that we've been there, we've felt low, we've felt abandoned, and yet we finished the race. And now you, in the athletic imagery, you can run the race with perseverance because you know that we finished the race. There's hope in our hearts because we've seen the people in the past. You know this sense, this doing something in front of important people motivates you to do it better. I remember when I was in college and I would see Aaron in the stands at my soccer games. Those are the days that I wanted to play my absolute best. When the right people are in the stands, it's motivating. He's saying we now, as God's church, are living before this great cloud of witnesses. Can you imagine that? That Moses and Noah and Abel and Sarah and Abraham are watching as we now have our turn to follow Jesus. That's the imagery he's using so that because of all of this faith in the past, and then he moves on. This is what you do next. You remember of all those who have come before you and then you throw off everything that hinders. That's what it says in the second part. Let us lay aside also weight and sin which clings so closely. The two different things he's talking about here, the weight and the sin that clings so closely. The weight, that could be any good thing that has become ultimate. Weight isn't necessarily sin. It's these things that we're good, we're designed for our pleasure, we're designed for God's glory, and yet every time we return to them, it ends up dragging us into sin. What are the things in your life that are weighty, that keep you distracted from following Jesus? Even if they're good things, he's saying you have to tear those things off and away from you. You have to give them up even though they're not necessarily wrong because it slows you down in following Jesus. And he also talks about the sin that so easily entangles. Now, different than the first thing, which was good, this is sin, the sins that we all run to, the sin that so easily entangles us. So what is the sin that so easily entangles you? For me, it's probably pride or anger, or lust. What are those things for you? I want you to know that Jesus came for people who needed to be rescued from their sin. He came for messed up people, for broken people, for the ones who can't keep it together. 
And what this text is calling us is to be aware of. Do you know what your sin is that gets in your way? Do you know what those sins are? Do you know what those idols are? People who misuse the name of God or don't honor God as king or don't honor the Sabbath or their parents who kill, who snap at their children, who commit adultery, who want to commit adultery. And for those that steal and cheat on their taxes and lie and envy. Jesus is for failures and quitters, ones who give in to temptation, ones who tell themselves all the way that they're not going to sin and yet they sin anyway. One who hope to do better and then yet fall away. One who dabble with their sin at night. One who is for addicts who just can't say no. Those who cheat on their spouses. This Jesus is for those who shout at their children and cheat on tests. Those that gossip. Those that want what does not belong to them. Maybe your sin is listed in that long list of sins. Maybe it's not. Maybe yours is different than that, that I didn't yet mention. But how will you fight? How will you throw off your sin if you don't know what it is that clings so closely? You have to identify the things in your life. If you're brave enough, you could ask someone who loves you, what do you think is the sin that so easily entangles me? And if it's someone who's close to Jesus, they'll know that they'll speak gently because they have sin that easily entangles them as well. We have to throw off the good which distracts us from Jesus. We have to throw off the sin that clings so closely. About a month ago, before all of this took place, there was an Erlanger half marathon downtown. And what happens in a long race like this is that people start bundled up. They've got hats and vests and gloves on because when they start, it's cold and then they begin the race and they're running and as the sun warms the sky and as they're warm from running the race, but it's spread out over a long, long, many miles and you begin to see littered along the trail, gloves and hats just dropped, vests taken off. People are literally tearing off their clothes and their comfort and their warmth so that they can continue on, so that they can press forward. That's what he's calling us to do. What do you need to take off which is good and which is sinful and set them aside so that you can more closely follow Christ? So he reminds us of the context of all these fathers of faith and mothers of faith from the past. And then he tells us to get running, you're gonna to need to take off good things that are distractions and bad things that are sin. And then he says, run with perseverance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. Now, some of you are thinking right now, run, I can barely limp. But that's actually the picture that he's giving us. He's not saying run like a sprinter. Give it all out right away. He's saying run with endurance, run with pace. Even when sometimes when you slow to a limp, keep moving. Put one foot in front of the other and run with endurance. These heroes from the past, we saw they didn't get it right all the time and they certainly weren't always sprinting, but they kept going. Friends, when you face trials of all different kinds, run with perseverance. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. 
trusting that God has been faithful to all those heroes in the past and that God will be faithful to you now. Run with perseverance, even if you have to crawl. So that's what he's calling us to. He says we need to remember that we are children of a heritage of faith. We need to put aside good things, put aside sin. We need to run with perseverance, even when we have to go slow. But what's going to motivate us to do that? We all know that at times we get overwhelmed and discouraged and it's not enough. And he says, here's what will keep you going. Glance with me in the text. It says this, coming to the end of one and end of two. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured his cross, scorning its shame, and is seated on the right hand of God. Consider him. What it's saying is when you're running and when you're limping and even when you're crawling and you're discouraged and you want to give up, look at Jesus. Stare at him. If you're like me, we're not very good at staring at anything. I'll be looking at my phone on Instagram or a text and I'll get an email and I'll click over to that. And while that's happening, I'm finishing a conversation with someone else. We are the most distracted people in history. We don't even know what it's like to stare at someone. And he's saying, if you want to get through this intense race, stare at Jesus. Don't stare at your shame. Don't stare at the mistakes from the past. Don't stare at your sin. Don't even stare at how bad you feel about your sin. Stare at Jesus, the one who is faithful, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says, look at him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me ask you, what do you tend to fix your eyes on? For some of us, it's the next day, oh, tomorrow will be better, I'll try to fight my sin again. For some of us, it's the shame of whatever we've just done. For some of us, it's staring at other people's sin so that we can feel better about our own sin. I don't know what it is that you stare at, but it's saying lift your eyes and stare at something better. That's how you'll get through this. This thing you wouldn't possibly would have dreamed that you'd get through. That's how we'll do this. We'll stare at Jesus. We do that as individuals, but also as a church. We celebrate a year of worship, but friends, you know we have been through a lot. And yet we will stare at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who called us as faithful, and he will see us through. So we'll run with perseverance and we'll lock our eyes on Jesus. It's said that when Michelangelo was sculpting the David, which took two years for him to do, it's said that he would go each day, almost all day, and sit down and stare at the uncut marble. That's all he did for months, stare at it. Somebody asked him what he was doing, and he said, I'm working. For four months, staring at the marble, because he knew that in the marble there was something great, something worth, or worth his attention. That's what it's calling us to do, to not be distracted people, to be people who constantly stare at Jesus. Build our whole working and playing lives around staring at Jesus, what have you fixed your eyes on? Friends, there's something better.
we stare at Jesus and we look at his joy. We look at his attitude. Did you hear it in there? It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Who for the joy. Friends, I really want you to hear me say this because I think when we're aware of our sin, it feels like Jesus did this with some resentment. Oh, I'll save them, but man, they're not worth it. Or Jesus did it from some dutiful attitude. I guess we agreed, so I'll go and save them. Or sort of this sense of he's ashamed of us, but he'll get it done. The text destroys, it detonates those ideas and says, Jesus came for you for the joy set before him. It made him happy to do it. He delights in saving his people. The next time you're groveling and you're beating yourself up, I want you to remember that Jesus delights to save his people. It brings him joy to do so. What does it do in your heart to know that Jesus doesn't resent you, that he's not ashamed to be called your God, and that he saved you for the joy set before him? It's not just his attitude. We see his work. It says it right in there. He endured the cross despising the shame. He endured the cross. For the joy, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What he's saying to this discouraged group, this church that is undergoing persecution, what he's saying is when you're struggling, remember that he paid for your sin on the cross and there's no more shame. There's no more sin left for you to pay. He paid it all. Look at his work. He endured the cross. Not just his work, but his finished work. It says it right in there, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It means he sat down because his work was finished. One of our professors in seminary used to say, you have to constantly stare and stare again at the finished work of Christ. Everything that you needed him to do for you to walk through those pearly gates has already been done. Make no mistake. It's the finished work of Christ. He sat down. He has made propitiation. He's made atonement. He has set us free by forgiving us for our sins and giving us his righteousness. Your salvation is not up for grabs. It's finished work. So you see, when you're struggling and you're weary, you look to Jesus. You look at his attitude of joy. You look at his work of accomplishing on the cross and his finished work of sitting down because that's how completed the work is. And it says, look at him when you're struggling. Verse three. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That means that he wants you to look long and often at Jesus, one who endured all of his friends walking away from him, one of who even endured being forsaken by the Father, if Jesus can go through all of that, he's saying, how much more so will you survive the suffering that he's called you to? 
So we look with the context of these witnesses. We shed our life clean of sin and good things that distract us. And we run with perseverance, limping and sometimes crawling along. And we do it because we're staring at Jesus, not ourselves, not each other, not our failures, not our victories. We're staring at Jesus who saved us with joy and did and accomplished the finished work of Christ. And he tells them this in the midst of their hurt because he wants them to know that their hurt is related to discipline. He's saying you can have hope and faith and encouragement even when you're being disciplined. Look in verses 4 and 5. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhort- have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's a hard topic. And he's just told the people, this is how you'll make it through the difficulties of life and following Jesus. And this is how you're supposed to conceive of, to think through the suffering that you will be called to. It says, endure discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. So what is discipline in this case? It's a sign of being his children. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? What he's saying is, as you struggle and suffer through this life, consider that discipline. Consider that God shaping you out of love for you. It's a sign of being his children. Aaron was once disciplining one of our sons and he was getting more and more frustrated as they were talking through the discipline and he said, I know what you are. You are Satan's wife, which I think makes me Satan. But the point is, is that when we experience discipline, our thoughts are not happy thoughts. They're not contented thoughts. They're not affirming thoughts. They're these thoughts of something must be wrong. And just in the same way that our love for that boy has not changed because he said that, we've loved him all the more to shape him. In the same way, when you go through suffering and struggle and trials, it's out of love of a father. It's, there's no wrath in it, as Kent Hughes says. So he says, don't treat it lightly in verse 5. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't make light of it. Don't go, well, things are hard anyway and we're miserable. And he says, and don't let it crush you. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. So he doesn't want us to do either. Not take it seriously or take it so painfully seriously that we feel like God has abandoned us, that it overwhelms us and overtakes us. But he says, walk in the discipline. How much more should we submit to our father when he gives us trials? than we did to our own fathers on earth. But why? Why would he discipline an already weary and persecuted church? It says there right in verse 10, why would he discipline us? 
for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. What he's saying is that the reason that God disciplines us is so that we can be more like Jesus. That we can experience the holiness that he has called us to and that he himself embodies. We are disciplined with suffering in this life so that we can be like Jesus. Some of you might think, well, that's great, but if that comes at that cost, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if being like Jesus is important enough to me amidst this suffering. And I get that. But he doesn't leave us there. Look with me in verse 11. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems faithful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Peace and righteousness. He's saying, yes, it'll make you more like Jesus. And the more you learn to trust in Jesus, it will give you this godly life and a peaceful life knowing that you can trust in him. Have you ever met an older Christian who's been through so much, who's, we, who's been wearied by living in this world? You notice about them? They have this sense of peace that God will show up because he has so many times before. And there's this gentleness, this patience, this humility about them because they know God is forming them into being like his own son, Jesus. We are disciplined in our suffering and our trials. And it's done by the loving hand of a father without wrath. And it's so that we can share in his holiness and that we'll bear fruit in righteousness and that we'll bear fruit in peace. C.S. Lewis once said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. His megaphone, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now there's different kinds of suffering and I want you to listen closely because I don't want you to hear me say what I'm not saying. There's different kinds of suffering. Kent Hughes calls it educational, corrective, preemptive. And I'll just explain it really quick. Educational is what Job experienced. Job was righteous and then God lets the devil sort of cause him to suffer. And it's not because Job is unrighteous, it's because he's righteous, but he's gonna elevate Job's faith from good to fantastic. And so there's this educational aspect of suffering, but there's also corrective suffering. David steals Bathsheba, kills Uriah the Hittite. And David has actual suffering come upon his throne and even upon his child. There's corrective suffering and discipline. And then Kent Hughes says there's preemptive. That's like Paul saying, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn. And three times I pleaded with the Lord for it to take it away, but he didn't. So Kent Hughes lays out that there's this educational, there's this corrective side, there's this preemptive side. Job the righteous, David and Bathsheba, and Paul and his thorn. But regardless of what kind of suffering you may be facing, why are you suffering? Again in verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It says this, Hebrews is pulling on Proverbs 10, Proverbs 3, 10 and 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, nor 
resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And as a father, the son he delights in. He shapes you through pain because he loves you. Because he wants you to experience him in good times and in hard times. He wants your hands of faith to grow strong in the fact that he will see you through. He does this because he delights in you. Now, I know that can sound sadistic in the world in which we live, but each one of you know in your relationships with your father or mother or with your own children, obviously we do it imperfectly, but the reason that you would teach anyone is because you love them, not because you don't love them. It's because you care about what kind of person they are, not because you're trying to hurt them. I don't want you to hear that there's a secret lesson that you have to get through behind every suffering. As a pastor in Houston, I once went to a friend's house. They had just miscarried for the seventh time. And as I sat with them in their living room, they cried in their hands and looked up at me and said, what did we do to deserve this? What have we done wrong? We'll repent of it. And I said, friends, you didn't do anything. It's the reality of living in a broken world with our flesh, the devil, and our sin. It doesn't mean that you've done something wrong necessarily. That's what Job's friends say. They sit with him. Job's whole life has been blown apart and he says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where, where were the upright ever destroyed? Job's friends say, you're hurting, you must have done something wrong. And we are urged in scripture not to do that. No, this is nuanced. I'm not saying that the losses you've experienced were given you in particular reason for some particular character flaw that you have. That's what Job's friends say. Even in John 9, we see Jesus rebuke this kind of attitude. He says, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says sort of starkly back to him, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What I am saying is that Jesus will use what is overwhelming in your life to teach you dependence upon him. Your life is more than you can handle. You live in a broken world with sin in your heart, full of temptation around an enemy who's prowling around. And yet we're surprised that we can't handle our own worlds. We also see this confirmation that we shouldn't be assigning a reason for other people's suffering in Luke 13. People are asking Jesus, are those 18 who died in Siloam when the tower fell on them? Is that because they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And he says, I tell you, no, but you should repent. Given Job's friends and Jesus' disciples, we should never assume other people's suffering is because of their sin. Now, our suffering can be because of our sin, but we are not allowed to attribute that to others. I'm not saying when you get a cancer diagnosis, you should assume you're in sin, but wouldn't it be important to live an examined life following Christ? If you don't know when you're suffering, is this attached to some sin in my life? Do what they do in Psalm 139, search me, O God, 
Know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, it's those that are willing to ask that question about themselves and not others that are doing their best to understand their discipline and suffering. They will experience it as one who can trust God's hand in discipline because they know he loves them. I know that was a lot, and I sort of want to break it down because I don't want you to hear something that I'm not saying or alluding to, and with suffering, it's really important to speak clearly. So here's what I'm saying in application. One, God disciplines those he loves. Two, do not assign someone else's suffering and attribute it to possible sin in their lives. Three, when you're suffering, don't conclude what kind of suffering you're going through. Oh, maybe it's educational, maybe it's corrective, uh, maybe it's preemptive. You won't always know. Four, know that suffering will bring holiness and deepen your faith and repentance. Then I want you to know there is a goal to your suffering even when you can't see it. Even when you can't see it. And Sammy said this this week. She said, our goal in suffering is not different than any other time in our walk. It's just harder. It's to follow God in faith. So it's not helpful to sit around as if it's some code to break. What is God trying to teach me in all of this? It's making use of your suffering, saying, I believe that I need my faith deepened, my repentance deepened, that I need to grow in my dependence on Christ. Make use of your suffering. Don't beat up on yourself for it, but go to God and say, search me and test me. And if nothing else, Lord, make me dependent on you. And if there's no hope in your suffering, then everything we're going through is pointless. So remember that just as God saw these people through and following him through very difficult times, he's alluding to the fact that he will carry us through difficult times as well. Walk with other people in their suffering. And when you're too overwhelmed, remember verse three, consider him who endured so much hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Remember, the world turned their back on Jesus. The disciples turned their back on Jesus. The Father turned his back on Jesus. And whatever we're going through, we remember that, that we're not alone because Jesus died for us. Jesus saw it through. Or fix our eyes on Jesus. We'll close here. During my internship at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church when I was still in seminary, I met a man named Dick Lindemann. Dick's body had been ravaged by a disease so much that he was in a wheelchair and couldn't do most things for himself. This guy used to be a mountain of a man and a college football star, and he's handsome and smart and financially brilliant, and yet this disease tore his life apart. And he would come and listen to me teach on suffering. Me, this kid from seminary, he would come and listen humbly. And during our time of prayer, he would pray, and everyone in the room would weep. I was helping him settle back in one day after our Bible study sort of getting him back in his bed, getting him back home. And I was just overwhelmed at how much he had lost, how much he had, it had cost him. 
to follow Jesus, how could he still have a good attitude as someone's helping him into his bed and he's lost the use of his body and he's lost the work that he loves so much and chasing around his kids and being present there with his wife in all the ways that he wants to be. How could he still believe? How could he still trust in Jesus having suffered so much? And it just fell out of my mouth. I just said it. I couldn't help. I said, how do you hold your faith in Jesus when you have lost so much? And without pausing, he said, Jared, when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you want. Friends, as we look at this text and realize that we have been called to finish the race, to keep the faith, to turn our eyes on Jesus, to take difficulties as discipline and training instruction, we know that we'll never end up empty-handed. We'll never end up regretting the choice we had to follow Jesus because when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you want. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you would speak to us through the lives of Dick Lindemann and Sarah and Abraham and Noah and Moses and Abel and so many others before us. I pray, God, that you would cause us to lay aside sin and good things that distract us, that you would cause us to run or crawl or limp with perseverance, that you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and that we would expect that even when things are hard, you're accomplishing things out of love and not wrath. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.